0: Hey there, Internet. I can't know for sure, but I'm going to go ahead and guess that you woke up this morning thinking, hey, if only there was a place I could hear a bunch of cool people talk about video games. Well, then we've got a show for you. From developer interviews to casual conversation, from exciting indie titles to fresh takes on your favorite games, this is the Gamers with Glasses Podcast.
1: This is Gamers with Glasses, uh, and I'm Christian Haynes, one of the editors of the website GamersWithGlasses.com, and this is your Gamers with Glasses show. Gamers with Glasses is a gathering place for fans, scholars, artists, and developers who like to play and think about games, and today I'm happy to be joined by Roger Whitson. Hi there. Nate Schmidt. Hello, hello. And first time on the podcast, Don Everhart. hello. All right, so why don't we start like we always start? I sound like I'm uh, pinky in the brain or something. And do the same thing we do every night, try to take over the world. But instead, we're going to talk about the games we're playing. <laughs> so the games we are playing this week, what are they? Roger, why don't you get us started? I have,
2: I have two games that um, I'm kind of playing around. I'm not sure if I'm really happy with them. And uh, I I just haven't found my in yet with these games. I think that's my my thing. Um, I just finished and we'll talk about this when uh, when Christian talks, I I finished uh, Cyberpunk 2077. And I'm always looking on the lookout for these games that are like big games that can immerse me in a world. Um, And then I always like the smaller games uh, that I can play, uh, you know, one offs or whatever. Um, so I've, I've been trying to play, uh, super meat boy forever. Um, and I was, um, I wouldn't say that I was like a huge fan of the original super meat boy. Um, however, I played a little bit of it. Um, and, uh, I was also a huge fan in hollow Knight. We'll talk about this in a later, later, but like, I was a really big fan of the white palace. Uh, eventually I, I hated it when I played it, but like when I got through it, I loved it. And so like, I was like, Oh, I'm going to try out super meat boy forever. When it came out, I was kind of had my eye on it and, uh, it was kind of a disappointment. I am not a huge fan of runners and super meat boy forever is a runner. Um, and people know this, of course, that it, um, for a while was just going to be a mobile game. Um, but Uh, you know, part of what I enjoyed about the original super meat boy was that it actually gave you the ability to kind of consider how you were going to get through a level and you kind of have this, it's, it's just like, you kind of have that in the, in super meat boy forever, but, um, because you're always moving sometimes, uh, you'll die and it'll just, it'll just, it seems so much more cheap in that sense because you don't, you can't stop. You just have to keep going, and so uh, I'm just a little frustrated by that part. I'm not well. I haven't I haven't gotten into it very deeply. I haven't really felt the itch for that. Um, anyway, so the second one is Risk of Rain Two, which is another game. Um, I'm enjoying it. Uh, I have to say, like I had the same kind of ex- kind of thing about Risk of Rain Run. My problem is that there are very few uh, rogue lights that I really get that really speak to me i would say that the two that really speak to me are probably slay the spire and um dead cells i think that there's maybe a hades even like is a little kind of uh about it but um so i got risk of rain two, um and i'm enjoying it okay i just haven't really sort of figured out uh how to get into it and so I've, i haven't even really gotten past the first you know you're supposed to run to like basically you're a person with these guns and you're running around shooting things. You're supposed to get to the boss as quickly as possible. I have a hard time finding the boss because you're constantly running. Um, And as you're running, like uh, the enemies are multiplying sort of exponentially. And so uh, you, you basically in most runs end up just kind of running away from a bunch of monsters and turning around and shooting them a bit. Um, And it may just be that I don't quite get the tactics of this game yet, but, um, those are two games that I'm, I'm kind of like, it's like, I feel like I'm, um, uh, kind of like trying to figure them out, but I don't quite get them yet. So that's where I am.
1: So Super Me Boy Forever, it's like an endless runner where you don't get to control the pace, right? You're just kind of thrust along and you've got to keep, kind of zigzagging and hope for the best is that
2: there's it's not an endless runner so like they they're cut up it's cut up into uh levels right but the levels are such that that you can't stop the running yeah definitely and so it's kind of it's i don't know and I don't even know are
3: people still playing runners? Like I don't even know of any
2: runners that are really
3: popular. I can't right remember now. the last time I played a uh, a new runner. I played Bit Trip games uh, a few years ago. I played Cannibalt uh yeah. a lot of Cannibalt when, when that originally came out and then when it was ported. But I I honestly I think the last one I might have played were the uh Rayman Fiesta and Jungle Run games mm. on mobile which were surprisingly good because they were based on the newer UbiArt Rayman Origins and Legends games. So at least they were fun to look at and fun to listen to. Um, but I, I mean, I think that was maybe 10 years ago at this point. I think,
2: it's, I think there's just a frustration because, and I, I don't know, I've sensed this from other players who are really big into Super Meat Boy 2. It, it seems like an artificial way to make things difficult because the first game was all, was so well designed, right? Like, it was all about um, getting through a particular sequence, and you were able to sort of map that out yourself. And you still have that a little bit, but it, it seems like with the running, it makes it just that much harder, which I think is not... I'm all for difficulty in games, but I, I like that difficulty just to be thoughtful. And so... Um, it's not necessarily that Super Meat Boy doesn't have that. It does. Some of the some of the levels already are pretty interesting. It's just that like I don't understand why it has to be a runner, I guess.
1: I mean, it seems like almost like a misunderstanding of what people enjoyed about the original game. And you know, the first game obviously it was a slightly different team. You've got Tommy uh Refens who's still uh, part of the team that made this, but you don't have Ed McMillan, and mm-hmm. I mean not to just boil it down to that, but this this was a game that has like it seems to me a rocky development cycle, and again not to be overly reductive, but it is a little strange to see that a runner took this long to make, right? You know, right. And, and you know it seems like there were there were definitely legal problems behind the scenes that much has been said in interviews and nobody's willing to talk about them but it seems like the game that you got made that got made was a kind of like compromise vision that maybe missed its moment in time as well because like you said nobody's playing runners anymore
2: right and i have to say like i wasn't following very closely the development of this game so i i wasn't aware of all of this stuff happening and i think that um yeah it's unfortunate for those of us who have really great memories of Super Meat Boy to see this game drop after a few years and be like, oh, maybe I'll try this out and have it be such a different game is... Is disappointing.
1: So. Next, we'll get Jonathan Blow's Braid 2. Uh, <laughs> wow, I hope not. A runner. It's
2: going to be a runner, too.
1: <laughs> I want somebody to buy the IP just to see Jonathan Blow like rage in people's message boards. <laughs> that would
3: make it worthwhile. A, a right? Braid 2 without Jonathan Blow would be the opposite of what you're describing. Uh, you know, Super Meat Boy Forever without McMillan? Eh, less of an appeal. Braid 2 Without Jonathan Blow. Hmm. Now, now you have my attention.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It'd just be a bunch of like reviews where all the comments underneath the review were Jonathan Blow. <laughs>
3: you didn't understand the first braid.
1: <laughs> Jonathan <laughs> um, Blow, mad online. Yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> but Risk of Rain 2 seems almost like the opposite. Like I've played some Risk of Rain 2. I know, Don, you've played some. Um, Nate, have you played any of that? No, I haven't that seems like a solid like translation of the first game in the 3d it's not the same game by any means but the things that i liked about the first one are still there in the second one Hmm.
2: yeah it seems like it seems like um it has more to it i just need to find my in i think i think that's i often have that with roguelikes like i have to have a compelling reason why i'm doing this because i generally don't like to replay things over and over and over again Um, but if there's something, if there's something interesting behind the mechanics or behind how that's occurring, or like one of the reasons why Dead Cells appeals to me so much is because you have like different ways of having shortcuts, right? Like as, as, as the game opens up, you can take different routes and you don't always have to go the same way. And so, um, yeah, I just haven't, I just haven't found that in Risk of Rain 2 yet. Something like that.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. It's also it's a game that's so contingent on like luck of the draw in terms of when you get that build where everything just kind of plays together, all the different <laughs> items you've picked up, and all of a sudden you're just doing ridiculous amounts of damage. Um, and it feels good. Don, Outer Wilds. Uh, yeah,
3: so I, I like Outer Wilds quite a bit. This is my second time trying to get into it though. I originally picked it up last spring and it was exactly the kind of game that makes me want to like it very, very much. Uh, it has all kinds of things that I look for in a game. There's this science fiction setting, but all of this mystery, this open exploration element to it. Um, but it's not overly polished sci-fi. Uh, every the beings that you're, you know, playing have, ramshackle spaceships made out of wood and they're all kind of patched together. Uh, the soundtrack reinforces that. It's very acoustically driven. Um, most of the other beings you encounter of the same alien species are playing a banjo or um, harmonica or maybe a theremin um, and, or bongo drums as the case might be. Um, and, and it has all of these great elements to it as well as um, a very interesting approach to storytelling, um, very archaeological approach to storytelling. Not a lot of active uh, conflict, more struggles against exoplanet environments and, uh, you know, running down clock and, and things like that. Um, and all of those things build in tension while you're trying to explore all of these outer space ruins and figure out what's going on. Um, Great elements, wonderful components, very good style. I wanted to like it so much, but I bounced off of it the first time because it is one of the most difficult adventure games in three-dimensional space that I think I've ever played. The the demands from Outer Wilds to um, be good at the game and avoid death in outer space, And it takes outer space as a very deadly place. You run out of oxygen, you fall into black holes, you fall into the sun. Um, There's a million ways for things to go wrong. You're in a ramshackle wooden spaceship. What did you think was going to happen? Uh, And and so as a result, I would be exploring and really trying to figure things out. And then I'd bite it and have to start back over at the beginning. This time out, I managed to get to a place where instead of sort of just going to whichever planet um, I felt like and sort of doing things in a very unfocused way, I, I decided I'd be a little more systematic with things and head to a planet, die on the planet, go back to that same planet. And wouldn't you know, it, instead of uh, that being a grind or anything, it just opened up Fabulous possibilities to like really experience this game in this rich Hmm. and fantastic way, and it opened up uh, how magical every location in the game is. Um, So you know, just in the last week, returning to the Outer Wilds, um, I have a a whole new appreciation for it, and I think I, I finally am able to like it as much as I wanted to.
1: Wow, cool! That's really. I mean, that's a game that people. Love, right? And it's got a cool story to it too. Mm. Right. It was like a college project, undergraduate college project, oh, if I'm not mistaken, that then mm. won uh the indie game conference like uh you know college award that they have, and then just kind of went from there, found the publisher. And so it's it's got a really cool story. But I bounced hard. <laughs> off of it like halfway through because of the movement mechanics and i want to go back to it because it is hard yeah. it's not it, a it easy is game very difficult and I, I you know i think i played five minutes and then turned it off the first time just because of the jump just because of the fact that <laughs> like the jump you press the button and then when you release the button you jump if i remember incorrectly um Something like that, right? Correct me, Dom, because I know you're playing I
3: I don't think, yeah, I think it's a little more responsive to that, Um, but because, you know, without giving uh, too much of of the game away, and it is a difficult game to talk about for, uh, you know, crowds that are spoiler-averse, everything in the game is is a big clockwork machine. And Mm. uh, as a result, every different planet that you're on has different, you know, uh, weights of gravity, um, different atmospheres or no atmosphere as the case might be. And so there isn't a single consistency to something like a jump or a glide, uh, anywhere to be found in the game. Instead it's wholly dependent on not only what planet you're on, but, um, the state that that planet might be in. Some of the planets have gravity that changes um, or have things that cause gravity to change uh, depending on a local weather event. Um, And and so not only are the movement mechanics kind of difficult because you have to be very intentional with velocity and and inertia and everything else um, because the astrophysics aren't just when you're out in space, they're on every planet. Uh, but yes, the, the physics of the game are subject to change, which oh. is fascinating, yeah. but very difficult yeah. to maneuver within. <laughs> There's also sometimes it feels like, um,
0: like games are asking you to play them in a certain way. And just there was something that really struck me when you were talking about the first time you kind of gave up on it and it reminded me of the way that uh I often approach games and I wonder if you do this too where sometimes I kind of want to break it first like sometimes I I get into the game and I kind of want to push it to its limit and figure out how to bend the rules before I've even gone to the trouble of learning the rules. And, uh, and sometimes it's really fun. Like sometimes there, there are certain games that almost beg for you to sort of do that, you know? Um, but I think that sometimes you can also kind of, there's a sense in which you almost have to give in to what the game is asking for from you as a player and almost involve yourself in that kind of a dialogue before you can, before you can enjoy it. Uh, the in in a certain way does that sort of describe your experience that off base that there?
3: makes perfect sense <laughs> um the way you describe sort of approaching a game and just immediately striking off in like an orthogonal or tangential direction that's exactly how i started paradise killer and i loved paradise killer because it let me do that immediately i saw that there were you know maybe places i should check out first didn't check out any of them immediately made a left turn Terrific. Did the same thing with Outer Wilds. And it said, well, you can, you can go anywhere you want. But if you're not paying attention to how things work, wherever you go, then every time you go there, you Mm -hmm. will be crushed or
1: sucked into Mm -hmm. the vacuum of space. (laughs) <laughs> from what i understand too they were essentially compelled by their playtesters, almost forcibly to put in <laughs> the sort of rudimentary quest log that there is in it originally they wanted nothing like that the room oh, what wow. is it the rumor thing they wanted absolutely nothing recording anything <laughs> they just wanted you to be there with like old school adventure style like mm-hmm. you know was eight bit Zelda or something just like sit there with your like you know, pen and paper and jot your notes down. As trying a to point. figure it out. Yeah. There's plenty
3: of that, even with the game yeah. keeping track of some things in a log for you. Um, it, it does by no means uh, do solutions readily present themselves. You get hints in that log, and then you have to look around the environment and figure out if there's anywhere for you to go, and if you think there is, then you can try going there, because you don't know how. Mm-hmm. So you figure that out, too. And it is it is—it's a very, it, yeah, it is is—it is a dialogue, Nate.
1: But mm. it's its tough with those dialogues, too, though, right? Because there's a kind of active faith that the player has to allow to happen, because there has to be some sense of a payoff. And I don't mean in, like, the cheap sense, either. But I mean, in the, like, there has to be some kind of rewarding quality of this experience that's going to make it so that my going off the beaten path even if it's not something I find even if it's just the like navigation element or if it's just some kind of a a little music refrain or something there has to be something carrying you know um and there has to be some kind of promise that's attached to it and that's a leap you got to make and there have been games where i've been able to make that leap and games where i haven't and i know i want to make it i know i want to go back to outer wilds in part because i've just heard so many people say it's worth it and i I know the ending. I know, <laughs> like, I, I know I've heard enough people talk about it. It got spoiled for me in a number of ways. And I still want to play it because it just like sounds fascinating.
3: It, it is one thing I, I've been thinking of in relation to talking about the game. Um, for all that people are very insistent that people know nothing about it before they play it, because there are many moments that are, are really spectacular. Um, and you really do get that sense of payoff. And surprise and and just unexpected revelation and I can understand why people are protective of that but at the same time the plot is genuinely very good and I think Mm. it's good enough where even if you know the ending or you know some of the story beats just experiencing uh, the game and and uncovering the story in whatever way you travel through it that's also very fun Um, and I don't think there's any spoiling the enjoyment of that uh, I think I think it can stand up to spoilers. I think it's much less fragile than uh, some of the internet
1: may make it sound. And maybe just to throw it a spoiler, so people, if they are interested in a game, know what they're kind of getting into. The most basic spoiler that you can say is, you've got, what is it, 20 minutes? 22 e- minutes. 22 minutes each run, <laughs> and then everything starts over, right? And you're oh, like, yeah. and you have some knowledge that carries over. But what, what's really carrying over is like knowledge and desire that's in your head, in your whatever we want to call it, a heart or mm-hmm. whatever some of us might have, um, <laughs> that, that draws you towards back towards a specific place that you can get back to quicker the next time because you know how to hurdle yourself in the right direction. It, it is
3: kind of speed run the game in that regard. Um, the, the more you know where you're going and how you can get there, the faster you can do it and the faster you need to do it because, you know, maybe the first time it took you 20 minutes to get there and you only had two once you got there. Uh, the next time it takes you two minutes to get there, you have 20 minutes to explore.
1: And all of mm. this is grounded in actually a very rigorous physics simulation, which is what the game mm. started out as, if I'm not mistaken. Mm. It started off as a physics simulation, then became a game. And so it is like, okay, like if I go at this planet at this moment, it's gonna be turning on its axis like at this speed. And mm-hmm. so I'm mm-hmm. able to like if you wanted to, you could get like equations on a board and like actually map Absolutely. this thing out. Like I couldn't. <laughs> because I'm an English teacher. <laughs> um, and, I, and I'm just happy when I can figure out how to compute my grades at the end of the term. Oh, but gosh. but somebody could. <laughs> right. Right. Oh man. Okay. Um so it's me. I, I'm gonna play I've been playing a couple of games. Uh I'm gonna say literally only a minute about Cyberpunk 2077, which is for a team that had a ton of resources, they made a not very good game. And I think a lot of that had to do with scale and with decisions about revising the direction of the game over time. And I don't mean it's like, oh, I, I don't care about the bugs. It's got some jank and that's fine. It's not about the bugs. It's about the fact that it's a story that doesn't line up, that doesn't connect very well. There are a bunch of plot threads that were obviously meant to connect that don't. You have not only unlikable characters, but honestly by the end, kind of unlikable characters that were not unlikable in the most interesting ways, Mm. Uh, which I think, you know, Keanu Reeves' character, which everybody knows there is actually a pretty prominent role. And he's just like, he's your like rock and roll douche guy who happens to also be a revolutionary. And I guess that's fine. I was pretty,
2: I was pretty surprised actually that Keanu Reeves towards the end of the film or the game
3: <laughs>
2: <laughs> um I was just surprised that he was a part of it. Like I was just kind of like this is really flat. Like the, like most most of the roles that Countery's even like even like auditions for, they are more three-dimensional than this character. Like it was just kind of
1: odd. He, I don't know, it's like a what if Johnny Ramone was revolutionary sort of like I don't know, but it it didn't work for me and there's just a lot of like mechanics. I think one of the most ways in which the game spoils enjoyment uh that i think is very telling is that it's difficulty curve is so busted yeah it becomes so easy if you do even a modicum of side quests Mm -hmm. and there are some games where it being easy it would still hold up but i don't think this is one of them and i guess what i'll say is i I do hope that lessons are learned not just by CD Projekt Red, but maybe more importantly by other members of the industry. Um, Mm. And I'll say that this is like, I'm going to be giving a talk about this in a couple of months um, where I think CD Projekt Red is going to be one of my primary examples because it's a talk about finance and video games. Um, Mm. And this is a case where the financing of a video game had dramatic effects on the video game itself and it it shows um i
2: i think it's funny that like one of the things so like i really connected i'm a big fan of the new deus ex games the human revolution and that's definitely that dna is definitely in cyberpunk like where you have like you know you have to like get into this building and you can either like just go in guns blazing or you can like sneak in and use your implants to like trick the cameras. And that sort of thing I dig. Like I love that. And I love just going to find stuff and get the loot and like trick people. They don't know I'm here and I'm like turning off their optics. Like I love all of that stuff. And it is frustrating that it becomes so easy towards the end because it takes away for me the impetus to do the thing that I love, which is sneaking around and like figuring out the, how to get through this space without getting, you know, alerted. Cause why do it if you're just this God who can like destroy everyone easily. Right. Like it just, it becomes like that.
1: And I think that's, I think you just hit the nail on the head, which is, mm-hmm. this is a game that has the DNA of a deus ex, but is at war with itself because it also has the DNA of Grand Theft Auto. Yeah. And those yep. two things are not compatible game structures. Yeah, uh-huh. And they mashed it together. And they mashed it together, honestly, in a way where there were some just fundamental flaws in systems design. It wasn't just at the level of, you know, amount of time they had maybe. And, and I imagine this will be a better game in a year. This might even be a great game in a year if they're willing to do some really drastic redesign. But I don't know if they will. And if I were them, I'd say take the money and learn the lessons and go to The Witcher, whatever it's going to be called. And it's going to be called The Witcher 4, but we know that Mm. they're making it, uh, another Witcher. Um, And maybe try to buy your stocks back and go private again. Yeah. Uh, um and yeah. get smaller, which will never happen. But that's my that's my advice, CD project rep, if you're mm-hmm. listening. Uh, <laughs> go <laughs> private. They
3: they don't deserve it. They don't deserve the advice. But <laughs> that's fair. You'll give it you'll give it anyway. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um
1: all right. So what I would describe Cyberpunk as is a game that has a lot of pleasurable things in it to do, but is actually just a bad game in a lot of ways. Whereas I'm also playing a very small game made by, I want to say, five people, maybe six, uh, called Wintermore Tactics Club. Wintermore Tactics Club, uh, produced by developer EDC. I'm not even sure if they're going to be like a long-term developer. I get the sense that that maybe came together for this project, and at least a couple of the members are doing other things now. Not with any kind of animus or something like that, like, but just they did this thing and they moved on. Um, And it's a tactics game, as the title suggests, meaning it's like a turn-based game where you go into battles, but it's also very much kind of got a visual novel feel to it as well. Uh, And you're at a boarding school and you play uh, young women of color and... You know, you're kind of going about your day, and then you're going to your tactics club, because of course you're in a tactics club, uh, where you're playing a game within the game, and that's how they tutorialize things, right? It's like they show you how to do things, but you're playing the tactics game in the tactics game. But then the principal of the school, or the head rector, or whatever they call them at a boarding school. I didn't go to a boarding school, so I don't know. Um, The deacon, maybe? I don't know. I think that's a church thing. In any case, the head person decides that he's going to have all of the clubs fight it out to see who can be the only club allowed to exist. Never you mind that this makes no sense, right? Like, what's the point of having only one club? Uh, but that's what's happening. And maybe we reveal that we haven't in. finished the game. We're all yeah, in yeah. The club. <laughs> yeah, it's actually just socialism, <laughs> the club. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah. Uh, but so they have to duke it out to be the last club standing, and that's when it turns into these snowball fights, but snowball fights that use the same mechanics as when you're actually playing the in-game game. Uh, and, it, and it's charming. It's utterly charming. It's, I will say that I find the gameplay a little bit too easy. I don't think I'm an expert tactics game player by any means, but I'm very familiar with tactics games. Like I don't usually need much by way of tutorialization. I generally play like three or four tactics games a year at least. Uh, And this is the exact opposite end of the spectrum of like an XCOM 2, Mm. right? In terms of difficulty, XCOM 2 is notoriously difficult, uh, especially if you play like Iron Man mode or something. Uh, This is not that. This is, Holds your hand. Uh, it's more about charm. There's that visual novel element. They want you to experience a story. There's a lot of abilities to do things over. You can take your movements back. You can take your turn back at least a couple of times per battle. Uh, which also to me makes it, this is a great game to give to like a 10 or 11 year old, right? Like I think this is the perfect first tactics game you've ever played. Hmm. And if you have like, I don't know, a 10 or 11 year old who's really into Harry Potter and it's decided that they'd like to you know experience some fun boarding school action that doesn't have mm-hmm. like a transphobic author behind it this is the game that gets them <laughs> um, because it that, has that sort recommendation of, you know it has that charm mm-hmm. of like the boarding school and there is magic even though the magic is like fictional within the game but it, you're seeing all the same effects it's really just like a charming game the art style is great it has an adventure timey sort of feel to it mm-hmm. um so that, that's like It's a kind of qualified recommendation in the sense that if you are a hardcore tax gamer, this might not be the game for you, unless you're really also into visual novels or into just narrative driven games. Uh, I'm gonna see it through, but it is a game that I would say it's a great gift game for somebody who hasn't played a lot of these kinds of games or who might be younger and just getting into games. I think it would be a great, you know. Gift over Steam or whatever other platform. I think it's on Steam. I don't know if it's on itch.io. Um, the last game I'll talk about uh, is Yakuza Like a Dragon, which I've been told not to call Yakuza 7. Uh, uh, but this is so, this is my second Yakuza game. I want to say I played about two thirds of Yakuza 0. I didn't finish it for some reason. I think it was might have been. I've just started traveling, uh, which often happens to me. I start traveling when I'm playing a game and just can't get back into it. Uh, this game has got its hooks in me, though. Uh, Yakuza Like a Dragon. Uh, Ichivan, or Ichi, the protagonist who's just like sort of down on his luck Yakuza, former Yakuza soldier. Uh, who goes to jail for somebody else and it gets back out and nobody's waiting for him and nobody wants him back, it ends up homeless and becomes friends with a number of like homeless people. And as far as I can tell, the game's about sort of climbing your way back up, maybe not mm-hmm. back up into the Yakuza, I don't know yet, because I'm only in the third or fourth chapter, uh, about seven hours in. But the big change they made for this game is they made it turn-based. And the character thinks of himself like as being in an RPG, right? He's constantly comparing his life to Dragon Quest, and he wants to be a hero. And there's all these moments, like you're at like a, you know, like a job placement center. Uh, trying to get a job for yourself uh, and you're talking with the guy and he's like, it sounds like you live your life as if it were an RPG. I <laughs> guess that makes sense. Life is a lot like an RPG, <laughs> uh, but it's so just like great the way it does it. It's so funny. I mean, the Yakuza series, I think is actually known for its sense of humor, but it's really clicking for me here. And it's happy, like even when it's like hard, difficult things to talk about, it's happy uh and i don't know it's just hitting me in the exact right spot uh it's one of those games where i'm like when can i find another hour to play it and Mm. uh yeah Yeah. and it's just yeah it's wonderful it and this is the game where it's like the perfect balance between it's got all the different fun things you can do and it's also just a very well structured game as long as you don't mind watching the occasional 15 to 20 minute series of cutscenes. Yeah. <laughs>
3: <laughs> now that sounds like the Yakuza series. Yeah. Yeah. No,
1: there's definitely, there was a moment where like, so you go to prison. I, I think this is okay as a spoiler. You go to prison. You do not get to fight in prison or do anything in prison except to watch prison play out. Oh and God. I kept on whole—I was holding the controller, and I was like—and—and <laughs> oh, no. and I think my older daughter is watching some of this. She's like, "Are you doing anything?" And I was like, "I'm just watching." She's like, <laughs> "She's like, are, are you gonna have to press any buttons?" I was like, "I don't know." <laughs> nope. <You can't laughs> I got out of prison. Time. I got out of prison, and I finally got to press the button. Can you? So you can't like skip the cutscenes. I mean, you could. Oh, okay, okay, okay. But then you'd be like missing like fifteen minutes of the game. Yeah. Um. So you have to know that and you have to be okay with that. But I'm loving it. I'm just loving it. So yeah, that's what I. That's what I'm playing. Um. But Nate, what are you playing? Okay,
0: I'm going to go kind of fast, because I'm honestly, I'm a lot more excited about our topic for the week than I am
1: about anything I've played. And what you're Uh, playing segues into our topic pretty well. A little
0: bit, yeah, yeah, just because I've kind of been been thinking about it and trying to figure out what I want to say. Um, I have been playing Darkest Dungeon, that's been, uh, does every, is, is that a game, I feel like that was one of those sort of hyped up games, do you four, you three already know everything about it and I don't even need to tell you how it works? It's a tactics game. Yeah. And the thing that's different about it from other tactics games, kind of, is that they brought in a version of the mechanic um, from the actual Call of Cthulhu games where you have like a major like there's a stress or sort of insanity um, mechanic that will eventually make your players uh, make your little your little people uh sort of act on their own usually in destructive ways (laughs) sometimes self-destructive ways um and you have to kind of and this is kind of interesting when you sort of get back to town like the the village that you start in before you sort of head off into this lovecraftian manner that you're wandering around when you get back to town you have to kind of figure out what what form of r&r will kind of work for each character to m- make that character be okay again um, after a little bit, and and that's that's really interesting. I mean, the the way it's trying to grapple with sort of the fact that these experiences would be really harrowing is is in you know is is different from what you see in some of the other kind of tactics based games. But ultimately, I don't know. Sometimes I'm still interested in Lovecraft, and sometimes I'm just tired. You know what I mean? Like, they're called Red Hook Studios, which is like I don't. Maybe I need to do some research. I don't know why would you make a Lovecraftian game and name yourself after the horror at Red Hook? Like Mm. that is that is if there's a worse if, if there's a worst Lovecraft story, it's the horror at Red Hook, and and not from a story like uh, not not because the writing is a problem. It's just it's just like as. If if there's a more overtly racist Lovecraft story, I don't know which one it is. Yeah. Um, <laughs> like it's just it's a, so. Yeah, exactly, exactly, and so I just I don't know. It, it, and and I don't want to sound like I just hate this game because uh, I don't. I think the the animation is really cool. The the art style is sort of you know that that uh almost uh um like a really badass Sunday school flannel graph. Like it's it's sort of two two dimensional in a cool way, you know? And and I like that. I really like that. The intricacy of it. It's like playing with fancy paper dolls. But uh I I, I just I don't know. Maybe I need to find some horror that's not grounded in the Lovecraft mythos for a little while because I just feel like I'm getting tired of this sort of, oh,
2: yeah, you know. I I played this game probably, um you know, I probably like three or four years ago. So it's been a while and it was before many of the DLCs have come out Um and I didn't get to it. I have to admit that I didn't, I don't know if you get further in the game and it's just like all Lovecraft all the time. I mean, I know that there were a few things that I like one of the characters has a spell that shoots tentacles or something like there are just little little things here and there. Uh, but the two things I have to say that I, I love about that game that are the narrator. I love the narrator. The narrator I think he's hilarious. Cool. Yeah, he is hilarious. Is cool. I laugh every time I listen to him. And then I I just think it's really an interesting kind of game in terms of like the way that you're supposed to act towards the characters, like on the one hand, I think it is really interesting to see like these characters develop, uh, these psychological conditions. On the other hand, um, you're not supposed to come become attached to any of the characters. The whole game is like a meat grinder. You're just kind of like throwing, throwing things at this thing and hoping to get more money and hoping to get more stuff. And like, it's, it's brutal. Like, it's just like, like you, if you get too attached, and you like level up this character, and then they just die on some random quest, like, that's just it, that that's what happened. And so like, those two things were interesting to me. Um, I have to say that, like, I don't, I keep thinking I'm gonna return to it. And then I just never do. And I think part of that is like, I'm not uh, you know whatever about the Lovecraft. Like I'm not like interested to go into like Lovecraft land um, a lot. And uh, despite all of that other stuff, and I'm I'm kind of with you on that, Nate. Like like there's just been a lot, and even like even like self. You know we had N.K. Jemison's City We Became, which was a critique of Lovecraft, Lovecraft Country, another critique of Lovecraft. It's just like okay, well, just there are other things in the world that we can do <laughs> except except Lovecraft and critique Lovecraft like it like I get that he's this huge presence in horror and he's he sure um but like let's let's have a broader broader canvas to, yeah, to do let's have
3: so. two dozen games based on John Carpenter instead yeah <laughs> totally I want I that I love that this has nothing to do i need to be careful here but john
0: carpenter's releasing a new album i want to say like this week of scores for a movie that doesn't exist and it's so good it's so so good
3: i love all the lost themes albums and i just got the first one on vinyl so that is <laughs> yeah. wonderful news to yeah.
1: Me. yeah no well, this, it's this is, be, is it's not unrelated awesome. though right john carpenter no. <laughs> a video game player I'm just saying. He, he is a big video game fan. We should have him on the show.
3: Maybe sure, I'd yeah, let's do that. Let's yeah. do that.
0: Well, what's the well, worst I can... thing that's going to happen? John Carpenter
1: says, screw you, gamers with glasses. <laughs> we, we find out that he somehow had trademarked the phrase gamers with glasses like 15 <laughs> years ago. and does a cease and desist letter on all of our content. At I mean, that's point... the worst. That would be a hell of a coincidence, though.
0: It's five minutes after everyone quits watching John Carpenter vampires that they say you're a gamer with glasses
1: it's <laughs> <laughs> okay. actually the post-credit sequence of the thing um you know because okay. Re-
0: <laughs> okay and and roger i think those are awesome points and honestly i feel like i'm i'm doing this game kind of a disservice by talking about it negatively after playing it pretty half-heartedly um
2: i think i mean I they've, just- they've been pretty successful i don't think that they're gonna
0: no, no, We're I just, somebody them. put work into it, you know, um, and and I've I just, maybe I picked the wrong game, like the wrong week, like I'm just tired and sure. angry, and I think yeah. maybe I picked the wrong week to like sink my yeah. teeth into a, like a brutal, like you said, like a really brutal game. Where uh, even though there's not a whole lot of reason to get super attached to the characters, like if you were to get attached to the characters, it would be for utilitarian reasons too, like because right, you, you totally, up, absolutely, yeah, there's not, yeah, there, there's not yeah. like a story arc that, the, as far as I know, that the characters follow. Maybe I just need to need to um, try it out sometime when I'm in kind of a different headspace.
2: Um, but it is, it I is. Have, yeah, yeah, I know. But I would say ahead. that the whole meat grinder aspect is kind of interesting in a problematic way, right? Like where it's like um, you're not supposed to care about people. You're supposed to like continue. Like you're supposed. There are certain there are certain uh, items that you can get in some of those when you're in town that can like uh, level up these characters before you even gain control of them and you get more, right? And so it's just, it's just really about, (laughs) it's just really about uh, just getting as many people into this space as possible so that you can get further and further along. It's not about like any kind of story. I mean, there is a story there, but it's, I feel like the story is, the story secondary to this like crazy system that is just about killing people and making them crazy.
1: (laughs) speaking of meat grinders <laughs> and meat and as don has put it in our chat meat cute <laughs> if you will <laughs> and even if you won't
0: <laughs> i do love a good meat game i think we've even talked about this in previous po- i love i'm
1: pretty sure we have <laughs> we have
0: like juicy guts and meat games i really like a lot uh and so yeah i played regular super beat boy uh this week a lot because um i'm a weird parent and i thought my kid would like it and he really really does and he loves it so much and i run into the in the hospital level you just sort of splatter against this pile of used hypodermic needles and i think oh god buddy like don't ask any questions about this part Uh, (laughs) Um, but, (laughs) but the thing is, there is something like just really delightful about that, about that game that I guess I, I get, I get why everybody loved it years ago and it's still super fun. I think some of it is maybe I'm usually pretty bad at difficult games. Um, and, and somehow or another, there's that just right amount of sort of tactile, reflex that i i have in one way or another that i i can at least like it takes me a few runs and stuff but i can frequently sort of get get the a plus on the level once i figure it out and i think um sort of contra what roger was was mentioning in in the sequel it's that thing that's really delightful about doing it the same thing (laughs) again the (laughs) The eternal return. I'm so sorry. But, like, but, but doing the same thing over and over again and, 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 and figuring out sort of how to hack it, how to get through it versus doing, because as I understand it, I haven't, I haven't played it, but, but Super Meat Boy Forever is procedurally generated, right? Isn't it? And, and that's like, like you were saying, for me, maybe other people really, really love it, but for me, that does take a lot of the charm out of out of this feeling that I'm going through and I'm solving a puzzle. I'm figuring a thing out because it's exactly the same every time. Even the bosses go through exact more or less the same moves sort of every time in, in regular Super Meat Boy, and I can kind of figure it out and I can hack it. Whereas the the procedurally generated version I think
2: would be uh something else, something different. I would say that Super Meat Boy Forever still has some of that. Like like so literally you're let's imagine a scene with a runner, right? So you have that scene, right? But you're you're continuing, every time it starts, you're running forward. And if there's like a, there's like a saw there, right? Like you could, you would just keep running into the saw, but you can, but you can jump over the saw and then you die over here and then you jump up and you die. Like it's just, it has that element, but it's always going forward, which is a little frustrating to me. I think that's the part that I get annoyed at. But you can like, to your point, like there is a sense in which you can kind of hack it. It's just a puzzle that's always moving and always like, and the procedural generation part is really frustrating because honestly, I like to see how other people solve things too. Like maybe I'm missing something after a while. I'm like, Oh, am I missing something? And sometimes finding someone else looking at that same space, like I can kind of get a new perspective on it, but um, you can't really do that with this game. So
0: and also I love, that reminds me, one of my very favorite things about Super Mean Boy that I've forgotten that I love so much is the animation after you beat the level that shows you all of your other splattery attempts that when you tried, and, and it's this reminder. I don't know, there's something about it that is just so satisfying. Like to look to, to look back and relive all of those failures and then be like, especially at the moment of your triumph, right? I mean, like I, I did this, and now I gotta go back and watch myself screw it up over and over. But it's also like, it, especially if there's a million sort of little little red meat guys running around. Um, it, it's it's really fun and, and really rewarding. I think it makes it more rewarding that reminder of how many times you had to try before you really got there.
1: I always love that replay mechanic too though i mean like mike bithell's john wick hex game does it and it's a little it's a little janky a little choppy but like you know you do the turn-based john wick combat and at the end it replays the entire thing for you as if it had been in real time uh i just love that you know though like this is what you just did you know um it makes you feel badass or you know Depends on how many blood streaks there are in your uh, Super Meat Boy <laughs> level, which in my case was a lot. Always. <laughs> oh my god! Why don't we use that as a as a segue? Another meat cute uh, to talk about uh, indie games. Our special topic of the week is what makes an indie game indie, uh, because it's a term that gets thrown out around a lot, but it could mean a lot of different things, uh, and you know, part of what we, you know, we started talking about this a little bit before the episode started, uh, but, you know, we were each coming up with, like, I think different even dates or rough sort of moments when the term indie even makes sense to use, right? So, I mean, Don, you you were making the case for, like, dating it back, and I think, Roger, you were sort of on board with this, too, like, dating it back to those old, like, BBS services, old online forums with people exchanging games and then sort of like blooming as it were in the 90s with shareware and freeware and the like so so like what does it mean for it to begin there i guess for me
3: i I was thinking uh really some of the first ways i started playing any games other than ones just on a console and with the Nintendo seal of approval uh, were on, you know, three and a half inch discs and then, uh, increasingly CD-ROMs, um, some old floppies, depending on, you know, where I was and, and what the computer in the house was. Um, and they could would have this plethora of hundreds of very different, very diverse experiences, um, on any one of these things. And they were probably very small games. Um, Certainly, in a lot of cases, they were meant to be demos, and then you could order through mail another five, three and a half inch uh, disks and uh, install the whole thing or something like that. Um, and there was just a very big difference to me between playing some of the games on those samplers or playing some of those games where a friend would just hand you something at you know school or something like that, and playing uh, a larger production from maxis or bullfrog or or recognizable studio of some kind and and that to me seems like a moment where there's more independent games makers who are trying to sort of break into the industry and there is enough of a recognizable industry with those labels that you know you you have a difference there
1: Hmm.
3: i really i really
2: like um you know as you as we were recalling the conversation we had, uh, before that we started recording, um, and these questions of shareware and BDSs, you know, I think, I think another way to think about this this conversation is to really sort of like try to conceptualize what is the philosophy of a game? Like what is, what are the philosophies behind these kinds of movements and, 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 and where can we situate these things throughout history and so i'm really i i find and i think i i, I think stephanie bollock and patrick lemieux made this point in meta gaming where they start talking about how um how games can be anything that people share and even people can play by themselves and like that it becomes something very specific when you know a video game is considered the only thing that A game is right and so and so uh an algorithm or or a set of graphics that that give uh an initial state and 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 a final state right versus like all the different ways that we play and so um i'm thinking about you know going back to kind of the bbs and to to the to the share with the spirit of like people just sort of coming together and saying here's a game to play let's let's play it right um and versus, um, versus like these kind of giant corporations, um, who are, who are constructing these, um, experiences often to make money ultimately. Right. Um, and I, I, think you see that both in the early arcades and in the newer, newer versions where the emphasis is not on making experiences that people share, but on, uh, constructing a certain type of, 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 uh, monetary, uh, sort of thing. And then I see that really in Anna Anthropy's work where, where she's sort of, I don't know if y'all have read Rise of the Video Games Insters, but she really is talking about like, you know, what is a game and how do we sort of bring back the spirit of the indies, which is, it, it's really about like people like, you know, trying using very simple software to create kind of fun things for each other right and i i just love the simplicity of that idea and i think that that's something that sometimes we get lost in when we start to articulate all of these all of these histories
0: and i think there's and don't let this you know jump us too far ahead in history we can sort of try to apply this back but i was actually thinking a lot about that book uh as we were sort of leading up to thinking about this on the podcast the the rise of the video game zinesters. And actually, it's kind of funny, so that came out in 2012, and so did, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe, so did uh, Indie Game The Movie, came out in 2012, and they both have Edmund McMillan in them, which is also very interesting, um, but but I, I really think, though, that those two things sort of signify a divide that, that you folks are also pointing out goes back a lot earlier. Is Indie Game the movie, as interesting as it is to watch, I mean, I think it's a fine documentary, but, like, is basically, like, are these white guys going to make a million dollars, the movie, right? And then you have Rise of the Video Game Zensters, which is, like, just express yourself. Just use... Flash, you know, R.I.P. Flash. We should do an episode about Flash, by the way. But like... Uh, I want to talk you, about Flash. Yeah. <laughs> Just like use use Flash and, and do a thing and make it. And and, 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 and Anthropy even says like most of it will be mediocre. And who cares? Like that's fine. You, you, you may... And I feel like there's almost... Oh, I hope this isn't a bad way to think about it. But there's almost a capital... An, an uppercase and a lowercase I way of thinking about indie indie games you know and that there is an indie game that's like talked up sort of again not it's not a it's not a value distinction right but like outer wilds was a you know a a game that has a really devoted fan base the people who made it have been pretty successful based on or even uh, darkest dungeon right is that an indie game maybe with a capital i right um, so I think there's something a lot more interesting going on than just like, is this made by a typical AAA studio? Is it distributed by, um, uh, uh, some significant company or, or whatever. I think there's also layers, um, uh, between like Newgrounds and, um, oh, what's that one? Gorgeous Trainwreck, uh, uh, and, and these websites, where you can just sort of throw these simple self-expressions into the air, um, which I personally kind of prefer, but I just said it's not a value judgment, so I'm gonna stick with that.
2: <laughs> I love I love what you're saying, and I just want to say this really briefly. I apologize. But like I just love what you just said, Nate, because I just taught like a year or so ago, I taught a video games class in which we were we read Anna Anthropy's book. Um and we I spent the semester having them trying to create a create a video game, right? Like that was the whole point. And I tried to leave it as open as possible um and it was really fascinating to me how and, and I mean it's not that fascinating it's just what students do but like um how uh fettered their imagination was when it came to what constituted a game like they wanted to make the next final fantasy or they wanted to make like they wanted to make a new Super Mario kind of game. Like they wanted the things that were about making money. they made a lot of money. And it makes sense that they you would want that. But it's just it's just interesting how, you know, in the sense that like we have so I think in terms of this in terms of this massive industry of making games, we've so limited the possibilities of what a game can be um based on that. So
1: and so I want to, I really like that distinction between like, you know, a capital I Indy versus a lowercase I Indy. Right. And like, if we're talking capital I Indy, like this is where I think that maybe that doesn't exist until you get something like flash in 96 or 97. And this was my argument, which, you know, sort of runs against the grain of, I think what, you know, Don and Roger were arguing and not because I, I mean, I had some of those same experiences. I, you know, one of those people that played like hundreds of hours of shareware games that I never bought I'd just play the first few hours and be like, oh, that was great. That was a great game. Um, uh, you know, because <laughs> I was broke. Um, and when I did spend money, it was just on pot uh, in the 90s. Um, but, you know, when you get Flash coming out, you start getting this like coherence is coming together of a specific set of aesthetics of ways of exchanging uh, games of people collaborating together in ways that I think become recognizable as what we usually now call indie. Right. Um, And that really sort of consolidates itself with the rise of something like steam as a platform in which people can start saying, I'm an indie developer and that's a professional identification as well. And that might be, again, that might be more capital I indie, but I also don't want to like, I think, you know, Nate's absolutely right when he says, because I actually watched that for the first time a couple of days ago in preparation for this. I, I sort of resisted watching indie game, the movie, but I watched it and I enjoyed it well enough. And I think you're absolutely right that this is about like a bunch of white guys hoping to become millionaires. That's probably a little reductive. And, but at the same time, there's something to that. And there's certainly something the way, it, you know, how they frame them. Right. Uh, but on the other hand, I also can't begrudge anybody who wants to produce something recognizable enough that it can be called a game and then make money off of it because most of those people are not making millions. They're making just enough to get by on if that, um, in fact, most of these people aren't making enough to get by on. They're making enough to like sustain a hobby and feel okay about the fact that they're sustaining a hobby and hoping that it becomes more than a hobby at some point. Um, the vast numbers of people that release games on steam are in that category of people that are not going to be able to make a living doing this. Um, And so there's something about like platforms that are available to monetize things that displace something like shareware, which was not successful for a lot of people, um, even if it was successful for id. Um, And there's something that happens there, but, I wonder how stable it is. I also wonder how much it's become like, like reified or like frozen. And you get these aesthetics that kind of congeal over time, obviously certain pixel art aesthetics that then, you know, certain other indie gamers and developers have to break out of in some way. And so there's also just this cycle of not even a boom and bust cycle, though there's that, and we should talk about it, but also like a cycle of like what it even means to produce indie games that does produce really healthy working relationships between people but then it gets kind of like weighed down by inertia and then you have to have like what that term means what it offers up for people in terms of like how they identify themselves how they work with other people uh it has to change and you know next week uh i don't think i have even told you this roger next week i'm interviewing uh triple topping which is a team based in norway And they're like an interesting group of developers in part. And I'm going to ask them about this because they all have the exact same contract. Uh, They are like friends and like, it's a co-op essentially. And the contract is publicly available and they won't hire anybody except on the basis of the same contract. All of them have with the same amount of profit sharing and the same everything. Um, And so it's also just interesting, I think, to think about, like, to what degree is India as a category, not just like, ooh, look at this lo-fi aesthetic, or look at this thing that was only made by one person, but also what kind of working relationships, like what kind of infrastructure, what kinds of uh, resources are being deployed, um, as well as art styles and things like that. So,
0: yeah, I don't know. Yeah. And I, I see where you're coming from. I mean, oh, real quick. I need to. I need to put in a correction. I said gorgeous train wrecks earlier, and I was thinking about glorious dot com, um, which, uh, if if you haven't looked at it, is is just this wonderful sort of gaggle of things, which I, I, I think is related to to what you're saying, Christian, and is maybe where we're sort of dividing a little bit in the ways that that we're thinking about this, because I think you are probably, I mean, rightly. As I'm, as I'm assuming, uh, a a good Marxist would like thinking, thinking about, um, <laughs> yeah, it's okay. You're way, you're way more of a Marxist than me. It sounds like, so I can sort of out, like, out you here, and then just sort of scamper off, Scott uh, free myself. But like <laughs> the, 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 the way that, yeah, that indie games are related to, and you're right. I mean, of course, to people who are trying to make a, a. Not even necessarily living, but in some cases a living, trying to support a hobby or what have you. And to me, in some ways, what's more interesting about video games are the scenes and the platforms that dispense with an interest in the market altogether. And I realize that that in and of itself implies, right, that you, that you don't have to be doing this. In order to make money, you don't have to be doing this in order to make enough money to survive. And so of course, that's already kind of a classed distinction in some way. But for me, some of the most exciting stuff that I've seen, as I kind of spend my time sort of, you know, plowing around the internet and looking for just strange things that have made been made in unity to wander around in, um, are are the things that clearly that are are just made in this little burst of self expression that gets sort of tossed out into the ether in case anybody else wanted to see it or hear it too, and I know that not everybody should or could do that, and that's not the only way to make things. But it is a a really compelling way of thinking about indie games for for me too. That kind of goes beyond transcends some of those other concerns.
2: To use Marxist terminology that Christian will uh, recognize, there is certainly like a utopian kind of kind of impulse in. In both. Right. And I think to differing degrees, which is like, how can I do something that I like? And then what are the compromises I'm going to have to make based upon a set of issues? Right. Like and so and so if I really want to make a living at this, maybe I have to have a triple A job. Right. If if I want to create something and see like maybe I can, you know, maybe I can make a name for myself and go on to do better things. Maybe that's something I can do in steam. If there's something like there's like, but I think that, that I think that, that joy is maybe always there in differing degrees um, in all of those spaces. And even in like the work contracts, the, this, the ways in which, you know, this is a workspace, but we're not going to make it like the dystopian kind of, kind of CD Projekt Red kind of thing, right?
1: (laughs) I mean, like, the utopian ethos, right? If we want to talk about the utopian ethos of indie games, right? It's not just, like, we're going to make what we want. It's we're going to make what we want, and in making what we want, we might think differently about what it even means to make a game, right? Like, in doing this, like, this might be the harbinger of, like, a new kind of game development and i and i do think there are like moments where you kind of see hints of that not that it's all automatically like this new world is born right i'm, I'm much too jaded for that i think all of us are after 2020 and early 2021 which it turns out is just a long long 2020 um but uh you know there's certainly that in in indie game the
2: movie certainly like especially with Jonathan Blow right like I yeah. have a new vision of what games could be and they can be artistic la, la 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 like like certainly
1: but there's also something of like so like even like taking like I I really like what Nate was talking about in terms of like it's almost like game like production of games is like a journaling sort of experience like kind of experimenting but I actually think this can even happen. Uh, Sometimes, you know, and this is me not being a very good Marxist, I guess, it can still happen monetized, right? Like, I'm thinking of like Sock Pop Collective, right? Which produces, actually, they're transitioning right now, it seems, but they have been producing, I think it's two games a month for quite a while using Patreon as a revenue source. Uh, and they really can kind of just like mess around because of the way in which they bring revenue in. And now they're switching, I think, to a game a month to, allow them to experiment even more. But it is that, like Roger said, it's that compromise of, like, how do we deal with material necessity and just, like, we have to be able to get by with at the same time preserving some kind of experimental impulse. You know, what Patrick Jagoda was talking about when we interviewed him for the site, like, Patrick talks about like what if instead of games helping us solve problems they just make more problems for us and that's what's good about them like indie games is like making problems where you thought things were okay like extreme meat punks forever as helping you realize like all this shit was already fascist even before trump got into office it's just even more fascist now um don why don't you jump in here <laughs> Meatpunk sounds like a, a good
3: spot to, to discuss, um, certainly because it, it takes all of that head on inside of the game, right? It, it is one of those games that speaks directly to the author's idea of uh, dystopia already being here, um, vividly present, and inescapable, uh, as, as it turns out, to the point where the narrator in the game. Uh, and I don't think this is too much of a spoiler, apologizes prior to the final chapter <laughs> of the game for what is about to happen. Uh, and that, that's, that to me is one of the main attitudes of um, Heather Flowers as, as a developer for that and as, as a narrative voice uh, in that game. And there are elements of that too, a whole range of of similarly made and produced independent games, right? Where there's plenty of of jokes uh, inside the game that are also metatextually referencing the conditions of production, dystopian conditions of larger video game production. Um, But there are also uh, maybe indie games with a capital I, like we've been saying, where the effort is towards an increasing level of polish game on game or building an alternative kind of game studio, uh, maybe one with more equitable labor conditions or maybe one simply with more stable employment for artists and, and voice actors and game designers and narrative designers alike. Um, and, and certainly thinking of uh, some uh, you know, game designers, um, thinking of maybe some of the folks who produce games like Paratopic. Uh, who are uh, very clear about the difficulties of life circumstances when you're making a game. Uh, (sighs) I see how making an indie game studio or collective or something like that, um, especially if you can do that after sparking an initial success uh, and trying to bring as many people in Uh, to that situation and making something new and iterating upon that success and building upon it might be a very attractive thing to do when you're especially initially stuck or maybe forever stuck, uh, in, in this space, um, Mm.
1: and, and in Mm. this place, in in the case Mm -hmm. of designers living in the United States. Mm. I think that's important. I think it's interesting because, you know, Don and I interviewed, uh, Kaizen Gameworks who produced Paradise Killer, uh, Last year. And they have a story that's, I think, becoming more and more typical. Uh, The uh, group that made Airborne Kingdom has more or less the same story, in fact, uh, which just came out in December, uh, which is a handful of developers from AAA Studio are done doing the AAA thing because it's a grind because they're sick of those crunch weeks or months depending on the studio they're working at or even if they're at a studio that doesn't crunch too much it's just like that risk of unemployment every time a project's over because once a project's over maybe you have to restaff and you have to shift your specializations around and things like that and they just they wanted something smaller and something more stable and something that wasn't you know, managed by like 10 different producers and maybe even had input from shareholders uh, at a company, right? Uh, at some point. And, you know, so like the two guys that we talked to from Kaizen Gameworks, uh, was it Phil? And uh, I'm blanking out any the other name right now. Uh, but they worked together at some point points and then not at other points, but they, they were friends and they just struck out and they made this game and, and you could hear them like they had this practical savvy as people that had worked in AAA, right? They ha- And practical, I mean, even on the economic level. And they knew, like, here's what we we're going to need. Here's the scale we have to work at. Because I think this is something that actually the indie game, the movie, captures really well. It's the problem of scale not knowing how to, especially if you're young and haven't had a ton of experience with bigger games, like realizing how much time goes into scaling up the complexity of the game. And that they had this; they knew exactly what they wanted to make and how much, how many people it was going to take, and they did it. And Airborne Kingdom, this sort of steampunkish city builder, where you're in a like zeppelin-based, I believe, uh, you know, town floating above the world, um, which I looks really cool, and uh, I downloaded but have not played. Uh, but it's the same story for them where like, they're like, okay, this is the kind of game we can make with a smaller staff. It's stable. Like we know the next game we're going to make too, which I think was the same case when we were talking to Kaizen Gameworks. They knew what the next game was. They were going to hire two more people or so for it. And they were going to keep it in this sort of like, I think this is also another indie thing, keeping it at a certain scale and like being able to imagine how a game can be interesting and complex without that meaning you have a 50 different people working on like modeling or textures or something and like, and you're going to have to maybe bring in like some outsourced labor, like from five other countries in order to fill in the gap on some texture uh, modeling or something at some point in a game, right? Like imagining things at a different scale that are still complex. So I don't know. That's, That interests me, too. And I am wondering if we're going to see more of this exodus, because I I do really think there are some question marks that COVID has exacerbated uh, about how sustainable AAA production is. And I'm somebody who's a firm believer that capitalism is very good at adapting, and I mean that in the worst possible way. I'm not, you know, I I hear Jason Schreier sort of beating the drum and saying, oh, don't worry, AAA is going to implode in the next five years. And I just, honestly, I think maybe we will get quadruple A and that's even scarier.
2: (laughs) I think what's interesting is that you see a game kind of like Cyberpunk 2077. And one of the big problems of that game is that it's like a big, like, vacuous hole. Like, it's just this giant game You can do so many things in it, but where is its personality? Like, where is its, you know, like, where is its, like, I mean, it's so interesting. I I would love to see a bunch of game developers take that as an example and say, like, why are we making games like this? Like, what is the point of this game? What is the point of doing something like that? Spending so many hours, so much effort going into something like this, when you could have a smaller game with a more coherent aesthetic vision that's much more interesting. Um, and that is a tight little kind of experience. And so I, it, I, I very much agree with that. Like that. I think that, um, there is, there is something to like, not that, not that I think that that will mean the end of triple A or even the, what you said, the quadruple A emergence, maybe those things will still exist. It's just a question of like really being, uh, I think, clear about what these these things are for, which I don't think we often are.
1: And I, I like some AAA games quite a bit. The 2016 Doom is one of my favorite games in years because it was just like a blast and probably needed more resources than any game should, but I enjoyed it. You know, I'm going to play more Elder Scrolls games. I'm, you know, probably going to play another Fallout if it's not multiplayer oriented uh you know if that ever exists uh i'm glad those exist too but i do worry a lot about the way the existence of those things structure i mean to put it really bluntly the labor market of game development and what that means for young developers who burn out for older developers who also burn out who have like family lives that fall apart i mean I forget the name of it, but that documentary that came out of uh, Santa Monica Studios, a PlayStation studio, about God of War, about the God of War reboot, um, soft reboot, whatever you want to call it, uh, a lot of it was about like how messed up some of their family lives were getting because of the crunch and because of how demanding it was to make that game. And it's a it's a marvelous game in a lot of ways. Even if it's, you know, like game 50 and you know dad aesthetic uh in triple a uh it's ironic because it's supposed to be yeah it's like a game about a dad and
2: a son kind of thing right like it's ironic that that probably caused a lot of risks between fathers and sons
1: yeah all the sad dads out there in game dev um pour one out for them i guess sad dad's <laughs> cast <Gamers. Yeah. laughs> yet another spinoff cast so with her. Oh, my. but
0: i think i think roger you really have a good point when you're you're saying as is so frequently the case like the question needs to be asked what are we doing this for i think we we try to ask ourselves that on the site all the time. In, in in good ways, I think. And I get to pat us on the back because we, you know, we started last year and last year sucked and we were awesome anyway. Like, <laughs> I think that's really good. But uh, but I do think that there's, I, I have not been able to get this article out of my head that was talking about why the base price for games keeps climbing for the consumer you, you know not necessarily even from the producer end of things and part of it was that there was there was a de- uh a developer who said you know we have to say you know biggest game ever 160 hours of, of playable unique playable content you know um more largest most open world more than you've ever been able to to do before and the vast majority of people are only going to see you know maybe 10 or 12 percent of it maybe not even finish it um but you have to say that those things are part of the game in order to make it marketable and i just think all the time guys about so i have this water breathing helmet in skyrim Oh, okay. I
1: thought you were just gonna say it real life. I was no,
0: like, what? I <laughs>
3: a, <laughs> wow! I, I got a bathysphere
1: for Christmas all the time, guys. I
3: use <laughs> really expected you to
1: pull it off your table.
3: Just...
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, it's my head. Just peel off my head, and I don't even have a beard. Um, oh my god!
1: It's Yokotara.
0: Oh. <laughs> <laughs> that was getting dark really fast. I was kind of like, my god. <laughs> no, I have the Skyrim water breathing hat. And I think all the time about the seaweed at the bottom of the ocean in Skyrim. And somebody animated that to wave around in the ocean current. And what, how many people have seen that seaweed? You know? Versus how much time went into putting it there and making it move like that. And that to me is sort of part of what we're thinking about here in on the horizon of whatever quadruple a games would would look like, like, there's a sense of, of, of the more bloated things become the harder it gets to even ask the why are we doing this question because it becomes tautological.
1: Right, it becomes just doing it because you're doing it. Yeah. 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 no, I mean, I'm reading a book on Todd Howard right now that I think I'm going to review for the site. Um, and he has a moment in an interview where he talks about like how, you know, a fan was like, how far are you guys going to go with modeling these different things? And with like all the detail in games like Skyrim, are you going to start like modeling ants? And he's like, yeah, are we going to, and then he thought about it and he was like, oh wait, we actually do model ants. In fact, if you look at certain stones for long enough, you'll see ants crawling along them. And it's just like, there's a certain point where you are just like, huh, like, are we doing this just to do it? I also think there's a kind of like ideology that of immersion that associates what it means to be invested in a game with a kind of like fine grained amount of detail and an amount of complexity Uh and very specifically like worked on complexity that does, like that's never going to be satisfied right like CD project red does all this work and what do people like what are their first responses before they even realize it's buggy one it the first response is oh the main story's only 20 hours only 25 hours. Which, by the way, when I heard that, I was like, "Oh, thank God." <laughs> um, <laughs> As a uh, reviewer,
0: though, you get a different relationship with these things. Right? Oh, good. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, and, and I get the financial aspect of that too. But right, like, give me like some more five to fifteen dollars games that are like five hours long or something instead. And so, like, there's also, this, uh, you know, it's never going to be satisfied. People are always going to want more. They're going to complain about the fact that you only a 100 models for your NPCs instead of 2,000. And again, like whatever, those games are going to exist and that's fine. But we got to think about the kind of space, the fact that those games exist, produce, right? And how they structure the entire market. And one of the things I'll say very positively about Indie with a capital I, even if it sometimes results in like art styles that you see too much of, uh, a dozen roguelikes being released on a single day, um, all of which involved, you know, cards. And I love those games, by the way, I've written on those games. Uh, But one of the great things about Indie with a capital I is it does produce a marketing schema that people recognize and that they're willing to buy games because of, right? It does produce another like way of looking at games for a consumer and they can say like, oh, okay, that's a $20 game. I don't have to expect 100 or 200 hours from it and that's okay, right? What remains of Edith Finch is 20 bucks and I'm okay with that even though it's only five hours, Right? And I, so I'm happy about that. And it doesn't like, it still has its own problems there. But at the very least, you get like, I don't know, What Remains of Edith Finch, uh, Super mute Boy, uh, Extreme Meat Punks Forever. I don't know. We should talk about Dark Souls. And I'm going to imagine some type of really brilliant gothic sting That uh, Nate introduces into the podcast to transition I am going to make music for the Dark Souls Corner. Dark Souls Corner. Okay, so Dark Souls Corner. Dark Souls Corner is born of a perverse desire uh, for some of us Nate and I specifically to try to play through the first Dark Souls despite having fallen off of it a couple of times each I think Um, Nate how's it going I can already (laughs) I can already tell you Christian that I'm gonna be
0: so annoyed when you get farther in this game than I am
1: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I played, I played, I went up to those gargoyles because you got to the gargoyles I and know, I was like, what are these gargoyles?
0: <laughs> That's the thing. I,
1: I love, was... by the way,
2: can I say that, like, I love Christian's first question, which is, makes it seem like it's a therapy session <laughs> that we're going through. <laughs> like, this is...
0: No, and, and I regret asking that question about the gargoyles publicly because I do view this as a contest. And if you don't, (laughs) that's fine. You will beat me. (laughs) Like, you don't have to. You don't have to, but I, I do. I found the gargoyles and, uh, and then I let you know that there were gargoyles to look for. And, and that was maybe a mistake. But no, I mean, it's been, it's been fun. I've been, my character is a wanderer, which I think is kind of a mistake for someone who hasn't really played the game very much, because you have to be fast and you have to be good at parrying. Um, but uh, I've actually been really enjoying. So, um, for for easier enemies, I've been practicing dual wielding, where I have a long sword in one hand and a scimitar in the other, and so then especially those guys that have that real long wind up. My dexterity is high enough that I can actually hit them because the scimitar strikes twice. I can hit them three times before they hit me, and that's really satisfying. That's really fun. Uh, but I don't know. I, got I didn't even car.
1: know there was dual wielding.
2: <laughs> there, I mean, there kind of is in this game. It's not really well developed. I like it. There is Nate's like
1: whacking it. people three times when I'm hitting them once. There's well, dual wielding apparently, but they're with <laughs> weapons that don't do as much damage though.
0: Is is All right, the, well, like I'll your claymore to is still axe. gonna yeah, but. Or the battle axe, yeah. I don't know, but um, yeah, I I think I think maybe some of it is uh, the the fact that there's you guys like is may, is what makes me want to keep going, in, in a way. But also finally getting past the the parts where I've given up all the last few times, I'm starting to understand
2: why this is a fun game. So I want to take a step back, um, and ask. So what? Let's go back to what caused you to want to revisit like yeah like what was the what was the thought or the idea or the feeling um when you initially maybe played dark souls and were like oh well i'm not gonna do this right like versus like now where you're like like what was where did that impetus come from where did that emotion what is it at bottom sort of going on here with you two to make you want to put yourself through torture?
1: Roger, when I was six years old. (laughs) No, no, um, why? That's a good question. Uh, So I've, I bounced off of this twice before. Uh, And the first time I got past the asylum uh, or whatever it's called, the opening area, and then just kind of gave up because i felt a little lost after that the second time i made it past the taurus demon uh and then that dragon blew me away because yeah send a dragon after me I'm on the I'm, bridge a, the dragon yeah on the bridge, on the bridge. So i'm yeah, a few hours yeah. in the game sure why not why shouldn't there be a yeah. giant dragon um, Yeah, why not and that pissed me off uh and so it's <laughs> like i'm done with this so why did i go back that's a good question um I think part of it is hearing the passion with which people like you talk about dark souls. Like there's, there was a there, a there, uh, you know, there, like there was something drawing people in that I didn't think was just masochism. Uh, cause I can be masochistic, but I, but my masochism, I think exhibits itself in areas outside of gaming. Uh, I get enough masochistic pleasure out of writing practices. I don't need to do it in gaming. Um, and so it was something about like seeing other people's passions for it, something about knowing that this is a kind of off kilter role playing game with like gothic overtones was there, and then something about like there's a stripped down quality to Dark Souls too, in like a way that I think at first I thought of just as jank, and I do do think there's plenty of jank in this game, uh, but that. I'm starting to develop a fondness for very slowly but I think surely as well and you know I hate the fact I hate the UI design in this game except that I might be starting to like it <laughs> you know like I, I I don't know if I'll ever like all the stats but I, but the number of times that I've died on accident because I didn't close my menu all the way out, <laughs> yes. and like that one dodge roll doesn't happen because it's just closing the menu, and I, I, it's so, you know, it's like... Come on, um give me a proper pause, especially as a parent, I have to say uh this is not a parent friendly game, um at least not when you have a young child. having a
3: family not being able to pause. congratulations, you've made the game <laughs> much more difficult. I will say even it's designers yeah, yeah. it. yeah yeah
1: yes this is this is this is why we shouldn't have families uh, <laughs> It's not just the climate, it's also Dark Souls. <laughs> yeah, so th- I mean, that's me. There's just like, what about you, Nate, though? Like, I mean, uh, the honest answer is
0: that I didn't want to buy it, and I had an opportunity to borrow it for my brother, so I did. Um, but like, This whole thing, everything I do and say around here is just a long exercise in trying to say as many words as possible about video games, but never spend money. Like, just never spend any money, but still have things to say. Um, And it's harder than you might think. Uh, But, um... (laughs) (laughs) but especially now that flash games are off the internet this is nate this is a really metal game yes and that is the thing that i have absolutely fallen for like head over heels Mm -hmm. for exactly is Mm -hmm. is the sense that i um i do i i get this feeling this similar feeling to what i get out of some of the music that i love the most i get this sense um that like there's there's some frustration under the surface of this like with me that's almost personal the way that some of um like i've got i've got my my full of hell t-shirt on right now you can't really see it so good But, but but the way that some some of the music i love the most sounds like it's not just not just like loud and angry to be because that's an emotion you can have but like upset with you for listening like how dare you (laughs) you know put this on sort of like uh lou reed's you know metal machine music um uh, and but many 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 other things i i like this sense that the game itself is just daring me to like to play it (laughs) like and 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 i think there is a kind of um is it machismo or machismo I don't know how to pronounce that word. There's a, yeah, there's a, that to it, a kind of sort of John Wayne thing in me that I don't like, like that, that, it, that it brings out that I don't love to necessarily recognize and think about. Um, but yeah, it's just, it's this feeling of, I guess, like we said, maybe in the hard game podcast, like I maybe even said in the hard game podcast, uh, I am I am just with the rest of us perpetually beset by very big real world problems over which I am utterly powerless. And I can invent other hard problems that are made up, and I can fight them in Dark Souls and die a bunch of times and come back and it's fine and like didn't affect the material conditions of my life in any real meaningful way. Um And, uh, except, you know, my, 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 poor son asking for a snack when I'm trying to, when I'm fighting a gargoyle, (laughs) But, (laughs) but, but, you know what I mean? Like there, there is that feeling of like the, there's a sense of accomplishment that comes from this, that is a kind of wish fulfillment fantasy. And
1: I don't really mind. Yeah. And I'll just say, maybe just like to get it out there, uh, I do think that part of the reason I fell off of Dark Souls is because of some of the culture surrounding Dark Souls, the get-good aspect, which, by the way, like if you're a listener and you sincerely have put get-good on a message board somewhere, you can just stop listening. Um, we don't want you. No, I'm just... Yeah. Going, going back to that, the, the marketization
3: of get-good. Yeah. It,
1: it's... It, it, it's, you know, there's this book called uh, Toxic Meritocracy of Video Games by uh, Christopher Paul. Uh, and I like that notion of toxic meritocracy, this idea of just like, if you want it badly enough, just get better. And the way that plays into things like toxic masculinity and all kinds of other things. And, like, that has always turned me off about the game. Um, But at the same time, I've had lots of conversations with Roger about this. Like, the, the other side of that coin is, like, that kind of meditative quality of Dark Souls that I'm beginning to recognize that comes with that, like, slow-paced combat, relatively slow-paced, at least when you're talking about, like comparing it to Devil May Cry or something and that whole lineage of games or uh, Ninja Gaiden or something, Um, and the 3D Ninja Gaidens in particular. Like, this is a differently paced game. It's very... It's methodical, right? It's very methodical. And that takes a while to get used to, or it's taking me a while to get used to. Um, And some of it's learning enemy patterns, which, by the way, learning enemy patterns, because I hear this argument a lot, like, oh, it's not a hard game, just learn the patterns learning patterns can be hard, especially if you're a person with limited time. You could say that same thing
3: about getting to, you know, screen 256 in Pac-Man, right? right. Yeah. Oh, Pac-Man, it's not hard
1: to right. set a learn world record pattern. in Pac-Man. Just learn the pattern. Yeah, yeah. Tetris, learn the patterns. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> TM. Any schmuck you've ever played, right? Like Ikaruga or something like that. Like these, it's a hard game. I think it's okay to say it's hard. I also think it's okay to say it's hard that you enjoy it. And I'm, I'm or it's that you enjoy it being hard. Like, I'm starting to enjoy some of its difficulty in a very qualified way, in a very, like, tentative way. But, you know, if I have to say, the thing I'm enjoying the most about this game at this point is the level design. And a very particular thing, which is seeing a space from far away that I know I'll eventually get to, Uh, And not that far away, because honestly, I doubt when this game was made, and I'm playing the remastered edition, I should say, but I doubt when they made this game, like, that they had the ability to render all that far away, that the draw distance was all that great. But they managed to keep it compact enough, because you also get the sense that it's dense rather than just, it's not about breadth, it's about density in this game, right? Things are on top of each other, there are sewers, you can tell that you're, like, going just, like, past somewhere you've been before, but on a different level, different, like, height. Uh, And just, like, seeing something far away, far away in quotes, and then getting to it later, like, maybe, like, five hours of play later is really satisfying. So that line of sight, I'm just loving it.
2: There's this really beautiful, and you shouldn't look for it until you're done with the game, but, like, there's this really beautiful uh, poster that I definitely want of the entire uh, layout of Dark Souls from the lowest point to the, to the highest point. Um, and it just shows how all of the different areas are interconnected with one another. It's really cool. So.
1: Yeah. That, that Interconnection. That's, I mean, that sense of interconnection, that sense of like, this place is related to that of like finding a ladder, you know, that you kick down after you get through, uh, what is it? Uh, Undead burger. Or, Uh, and realizing that the place you ended up is really only like about 50 feet or something from the place that you started out in Undeadburg. And you're like, that's all I've done? I I spent hours, you know, or at least an hour, you know? But it's like, I'm, you know, it's just the other side of this wall. I think it was
0: maybe, was was it Don? Was it you maybe? I think it was one of you two who's described it as like a 3D Metroidvania in some ways. And that... That really opened the game up for me. I was like, "Oh my god, yeah!" Like, I get it. it down to the fact of the ladder that's only available after you've gone through some other area. Like, there, there actually there is kind of a, a kind of Super Metroid <laughs> in some way, you know, to this, to this, uh and the way it's laid out that. Um, that yeah i i can enjoy that i can appreciate it sucks though because i only the only time i i have to play games is late at night usually uh and um it it gets my adrenaline going and then i can't sleep (laughs)
1: this (laughs) is why you have to do what i do i play games early in the morning nate at like five yeah yeah that would be good and then it gets you going and then you're child wakes up at like seven and you're like okay (laughs) one one of my favorite things about the level design though to go back
2: to that uh really quickly is if you know once you get sort of like through most of the game and you come back to the early levels um the more you the more you the more time you spend with it you can start to see how brilliant those early levels are because um I just think it's so fascinating that like the enemies at the beginning of the game are pretty weak. They're not that powerful. Um, And in almost every instance, the way that they trick you to die several times in the early level of the game is to place these enemies in these really tricky situations. They will, they will do things like um, they'll give you a little, a little shiny to go after and your eye will go after the shiny. And then, here comes the stupid hollow to knock you off the cliff. Like, and it just happens like you're, it shows you how well they understand players and what they're going to do and how they play with your own kind of sense of what it means to, to be a player in a game.
0: I really, I really loved the, um, the flaming barrel. The one flaming barrel. (laughs) It's like after you fight your way past all the then there's a single file staircase where there's no room for there to be anything else. (laughs) And a donkey Kong, You get donkey conked. You, you You get straight up donkey conked. And I, I just I was so angry that I laughed and that's a really nice
1: feeling. Like I don't get that This is the difference between Nate and I. <laughs> I was like, no, no, you did it. <laughs> you know, it's just like <laughs> I can laugh about it now, but it but it took some I think I had a therapy session in between you know and that happened and now so that that explains that. Um oh. No, it's it's when you were saying that, Roger, I was thinking, oh, yeah, like, I now know well enough that, like, when I'm going, if I see a corner, I always turn to the left and turn to the right really quickly to see if somebody's going to attack me. And then I always kind of do a jump back, you know, and I I figured that much out. Right. So I'm, I'm getting killed less that way. But but now, yeah, it's the shinies. It's like, oh, that thing's glistening in the distance. Let's let's go over there. And the guy hops out and I was too thinking too much about the shiny. And uh I got got. Um, you know, by one of those knights that I was just talking about. Those aren't so hard. <laughs> um, uh, or when those... Uh, are they the hollows? The, like, really weak, like, one hit to kill, like, with no armor, like, sword that, like, will flail suddenly really quickly. But they'll also mob you and you'll get, like, ten of them at once. There's, like, ten of them at once in Undead Parish, like, I think the floor before you get up to the Gargoyles. And they killed me a couple of times because honestly, like I wasn't used to dealing with swarms, you know, and I, and they just surrounded me, and I was like, oh man. Yeah, I
0: ran all the way up and got their attention, and then ran all the way back down, and back out into like the big open space, and then sort of up the steps a little bit, and then I just chopped them down as they tried to come at me up the steps. But even then, i died a couple times just because if you get the timing wrong a couple times, you can screw it up. And it's just the way it is. The game that's wants a, you to die.
1: That's like the strategy for all the enemies in this game that maybe aren't a boss where you have a like, really delimited zone, right? It's like bring them to where you want them to be in the fight, right? Like with the one... Uh, night. That's up the stairs in the undead parish, right? I always like I go up and I come back down, and usually I can get them stuck on the pillars that are at the bottom of the stairs and just take them out with a couple of hits. And I'm I'm not above that, you know. I would de- <laughs> if I were dealing with this stuff in real life, I'd do that too. Um, <laughs> <you know? laughs> that's why I have my entire house like booby trapped, just like in Home Alone. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah no that's back to that methodical part of the game you know how are how are how do you feel nate and how do you guys as veterans like don roger you guys have played this game multiple times nate and i are trying to work our way through it and how do you feel nate about this way in which you get these glimpse of mechanics that aren't explained to you like humanity? right just like in real life humanity is not explained to you uh uh but the other the oaths, right like you can get you can take these oaths with npcs i have no idea what these do i don't know i'm assuming they're like they involve multiplayer or something like that maybe or guilds i don't know maybe they're guilds in this game uh i I also get the sense that there might be, like, really horrible consequences for some of these. I don't know, but I get the sense. (laughs) People ask me, will you do this thing? I don't know who these people are. Um, I just always say yes. Um, I'm sure I'll regret it at some point. Uh, But there's a lot of these kinds of things, right? I'm pretty sure there's poison I got bit by a rat at one point and some kind of meter popped up. And I have no idea what that meant, but I assumed it was venom or poison or something. There's all these kinds of things where I feel like I keep seeing the tip of the iceberg, and I imagine I'm only like that. We're only about a tenth of the way into the game, maybe, maybe twenty percent. I doubt twenty percent. Uh, I'd say five.
2: I'd five. say five. Okay, maybe. yeah,
1: that's fair. And and like, I'm assuming more of these mechanics will roll out, but this is not a game that holds your hand.
0: No, I mean, I generally just assume it's probably related to online play, but that's mostly a defense mechanism. For what I know, is going to bite me in the ass later. Like, I just... A part of my problem is that... Uh, and this has been my problem with so, so many games. Is I really don't like looking stuff up. Um, it, it And... Uh, so... I figure if I need to know it, the game will explain it to me and that's going to be a disaster. Like that's going to be a mess. Like I already like, because I have looked a couple things up uh, and, and like apparently you have to be human in order to summon people to come help you. And because I didn't look that up and I didn't know it, I use sort of your, one of just a couple opportunities you get to find humanity in the game. I just used it like a health potion, like like on some fight that wasn't even a boss fight earlier on in the game, just because I I knew from watching the loading credits that it would give me health, and so I just used it. And obviously, I died eventually, like and lost it, and now I sure wish I had it because I could be getting you know that sun guy. Uh, to come and
1: uh, come and beat up these
0: gargoyles for me. <laughs> so I didn't I, have to
1: I, do it. I know I am gonna beat this game with like a hundred humanity stacked up because I'm gonna be too scared to use any of them. <laughs> you know, like this I, I, this game is producing that like thing where you stockpile things because you're always wondering when sh- when's the proper time to use yeah, it. I'm yeah. totally getting that in this game because I'm like I do not even use my Estus flask half the time, and half the time that's because like I'm scared I'm gonna need it later. Yeah. Uh, and then I die because I don't use them. And then half the time it's because like that like window of time where you're so vulnerable. Although I will say one of the amazing things about this game that I love, I love that the other, that some of the enemies have Estes flasks and that you can stab them. Right. It, it produces a sense of parody. Right. Yeah. A sense of like even footing, like they're vulnerable. You're vulnerable.
0: Yeah. No, I, I, I like that. I like that too. Um But yeah, I feel like anytime I have more than a thousand souls, I feel like I'm a bomb. Like just walking around waiting to explode, like waiting to (laughs) die and just lose them all.
1: (laughs) I I think I've gotten to the place where I'm okay as long as I have like less than 3,000. Yeah, there's going to be
2: like, by the way, this is going to happen to you and you may have already happened, but it's going to happen worse where you have a fuck ton. Sorry. Wow! There went that of <laughs> souls. I'm free now. You've unchained me, Roger. <laughs> so many souls, so many souls. Like you have, like so many souls, and then somebody pushes you off a cliff, and they're gone. And you will sit there. You will sit there, and you will be like, "That just happened." And 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 so what's interesting about this? So this is my meditative moment, right? Like this is my Buddhist person coming out you have a choice here right it's fascinating in a way because like once that those souls are gone it's like you feel free like you're just like oh i can just die as many times as i want now that's always been the case right it's just that the souls become this interesting in this moment like they become this burden even though they're the thing you're collecting too
0: yeah that's
1: so right that's so right yes that's exactly what it feels like. Right. Which then also means you have to be okay with repetition, right? And this is a game where you have to be okay with lots of repetition. And I think that part of the reason I'm also enjoying this more this time, uh, is that I'm just taking the time to like really look around, like when I'm playing, and like I'm, I'm taking lots of screenshots as well, which is helping. Uh, and trying to get like the writing. like once I clear an area if it's interesting, especially if there's like, you know, that praise the sun, sun shining down on me. Uh, you know, trying to get the right angle of sunlight on a certain spot or something. Uh, like, I'm, I'm constantly trying to just get that right. I spent a lot of time in the undead parish trying to get the right like, photos with uh, the statuary in it um, after I cleared it out. And so I, that's also helping me because it's like I'm thinking about the layout I'm thinking about the space. And I'm like, okay, I'll probably die in, like, five minutes, but it's okay.
0: Christian's a disaster tourist. Yeah, more or less. (laughs) Out there
1: snapping pictures of Chernobyl. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, We should go to our non-game recommendations. Uh, And let's see. Why don't we start with uh, Nate? Give us your non-game recommendation.
0: Here we go. Okay, so... I'm a vegetarian, which I actually signed a contract saying that I have to say that at the beginning of all new social interactions, I have to tell you, and I forgot to say it the first couple times. Um, but I also, I hate most vegetarian cookbooks, especially the ones that are like, you know, quick, quick, low carb recipes for, for the, uh, just black brown rice and, kale. Um, but, uh, (laughs) so, but I love to cook. I absolutely love to cook. And, um, so a lot of my favorite cookbooks are, are books by chefs that, uh, are, are not necessarily made to be explicitly vegetarian, but are just chefs doing cool stuff with vegetables. And, um, you know, Chez Panisse is one of those fancy pants restaurants that you go to and they have like you just, they'll serve you whatever they're cooking that day. And I don't know, they're fancier than any restaurant I've ever been in in real life. It sounds like, but, um, uh, Alice Waters, <laughs> Alice Waters, who serves was the, one of the founders of the restaurant, um, made this really cool cookbook called Chez Panisse Vegetables. So just all these different, really neat ways to, um, use things inventively. I made, um, pasta, and part of the sauce incorporated the greens uh, from the beets that I was using. Um, and uh, uh, the, the stems, actually, you can sort of, of beet greens, you can stir fry, and they add this special sort of extra um, kind of savory, crunchy, celery-style savoriness to stuff. Anyway, it's a really cool cookbook, and some of the recipes are just, like, paragraphs that just say, like, you could try this. And then don't have any, any sort of, so it's not like for someone who's just kind of getting into cooking, but, but I love, especially these just little blocks of text that are like, this is something we tried to do with a parsnip and it was really neat. Why don't you see what you can make of it? And, and, and it gives you a lot of freedom and a lot of leeway. So yeah, my rec this week is a cookbook. Go make some turnips stew <laughs> or
1: something. <laughs> Amazing. Okay. So that's Chez Panisse Vegetables by Alice Waters. Yes. Cool. Yes. So, so my non-game recommendation, and I'll keep this really quick, is I just started watching uh, Cobra Kai on Netflix with my partner. Uh, and it is simultaneously a hilarious and moving uh, account of the Lives of uh, The main characters The protagonist and antagonist From Karate Kid right? So you've got your daniel son, uh, Who of course Runs a car dealership because uh, You know That was his destiny uh, And then you've got uh, The guy whose name I am completely blanking out on right now Johnny Roger. Lawrence Thank Johnny you Lawrence. Johnny Lawrence um, <laughs> Who's of course like now You know trying really hard to hit rock bottom, um, drinking and fighting with kids and things like that. And he's reopening the Cobra Kai dojo, uh, whose, you know, motto essentially is strike first. Uh, And I've only seen a couple episodes, but the thing that I'll just like leave this with, this is a really great show that manages to be both moving and funny. And it makes me want lots more TV shows that are essentially basically the grown up versions or much later in life versions of characters are reckoning with what happened in those movies or those shows. Like I want to see the characters from high fidelity in a nursing home or something, you know, (laughs) Uh, um, uh, you know, or take your pick for that. You know, like I want to see people reckoning with the trauma that, are clearly being experienced by these characters uh, in these movies uh, as TV shows. Uh, so I'll leave it there. Roger, you want to go? Sure. Um,
2: I I wanted to talk really briefly. I have two, but the first one I just want to talk about pretty briefly because a lot of our listeners might already be aware of it. Um, the Expanse Season 5 just dropped on Amazon. In fact, I don't think they, they're releasing it weekly, which, by the way, that's a terrible i hate that idea can i say that (laughs) i hate it because like it makes it like i like to watch shows you know season by season in at my own pace and everyone can choose their pace but like this weekly thing like i like i have to wait i i had like i should be waiting for this because i'm gonna hit the end of the season before you know before all the episodes are out anyway Total digression, but, um, expanse season five, amazing, um, amazing, uh, intergalactic, uh, science fiction story. Um, uh, I love all of the characters. I love the, you know, it's, I, I always, I always talk about it as like game of thrones in space, but I don't think that really does it justice just because there are different factions and different characters and different places. And, um, yeah different social systems i mean it's just really interesting in in those in those and the the cast is very diverse and fascinating and i love its depiction of orbital mechanics like the ways that the ways that spaceships work in the in this in the show is just really interesting and a lot more realistic than a lot of shows so expanse season 5 check it out if you haven't ever watched the expanse it's great the one i really want to plug though is this amazing movie those of you who have seen mandy um nicholas cage's film uh nate have you seen mandy it rings a bell i was just gonna google it but i was afraid that typing noises would get into the microphone oh, it's like a, it's like heavy metal horror like film with lots of red in it like this amazing red um i loved it when i watched it i love crazy nicholas cage comeback like for some reason that's what he's doing now and i'm like go for it, dude like that's awesome
1: but wait this isn't the film you're recommending
2: no (laughs) (laughs) beyond the black rainbow is this director's first film uh penos uh cosmatos i think and uh it's a uh amazing uh journey through um it's about this character who has uh latent psychic abilities but she's in this this asylum where they give her LSD and it's just this crazy drug trip and half of it is like he calls it a trance film so like it's like a trance music but like if that were a film um and uh you probably have to be high to watch it uh I wasn't but uh I enjoyed it and uh if you're into that sort of thing you would love it
3: have you seen Gaspar Noe's uh Enter the Void I have. Oh, yeah, I have. I have. Would you I say have. it succeeds more or less than Enter the Void in that it's a trip, it's a trans film kind of thing? Because I think Noah said the same thing about that one. I would say that, like, the thing that
2: frustrates me about Enter the Void is that it's a little weird in terms of its politics. Like, like the sister's a little weird. I don't really like Some of the things about the story around it, if that makes sense. I find, yeah, I find the trip itself to be interesting if a little unrelenting. And I would say that um, Beyond the Black Rainbow has more narrative, although only slightly more. The ending is really weird (laughs) of Beyond the Black Rainbow. So, like, I don't know how people would react to that. I'm not going to say it. Um, but I would say that I like Beyond the Black Rainbow better just because I, I respect uh, this director more than I do who did Enter the Void just for the reasons I, I said, so say. sense. bring
1: uh, us
3: home. I, I have maybe a, a more straightforward recommendation. Um, just this past weekend on Netflix, uh, they released half a season of, of Lupin. Uh, which is a yet another update of the uh, great Arsène Lupin myth at this point, the gentleman burglar, the gentleman thief, mm-hmm. um, beloved across anime and video games and books, uh, and primarily originally based in books, of course. This update, um, very French version of it, set in Paris, uh, starring a... Um, I think it's a Senegalese uh, immigrant at a young age to Paris, um, along with his father originally, um, who uh, does everything that you want the character to do. Um, It's it's a good update in that regard, but it also keeps all of the cleverness, all of the disguise and manipulation and style and, and gentlemanly style, um, but, but puts it in, in this the updated setting of, of 2020 with uh, occasional dashes of contemporary French political and social realities. Um, and as a result, it's it's brightly entertaining. is, it, you know, it, it isn't a interrogation of those things. they're They're just dashed in and, and they're in there with the characters uh, in, you know, just the ways that they would be, Working within these structures themselves, um but at the same time, the show is really more about look we we know you're here because you want to see him talk his way into prison to get that piece of information and somehow also then break back out of prison mm-hmm. to carry out his his burglary and or revenge plot and or they're the same thing it's french
1: this is this is yeah. good this will be. My partner is a French professor, so I think this will be one we can watch together. Um, it's, it's just fun. It's a, it's a good
3: time because, yeah. you know, the story is, is not high literature or anything. It's, you know, not a, a Proust adaptation or anything like that, but it's just, it's high French adventure.
1: Uh, literature is overrated. <laughs> uh, I'm teaching a course starting in like a week Called what is literature um, so oh, yay. Literature, right? literature great, has, has been fun. dark
0: souls the whole yeah. time yeah.
1: Alright Well thanks for listening folks And uh, we will be back in a couple of weeks Expect some other great content in the feed And interview with the developers Of Welcome to Elk uh, Studio triple topping uh and probably some other goodies and we'll talk to you we'll hear you soon